Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and this podcast is brought to you by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association supports, promotes, and represents the shared interests of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90-block area of Vancouver's downtown core. So housing prices are falling. The question is, how low can we go? Is now the time to invest in real estate? Dane Idle of Idle Insights, he's going to break down the ongoing corrections in Vancouver's detached housing market. He's got some very interesting insights to share. And a little later on, Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he discusses the federal government's plans for taxing cannabis edibles and also the hurdles facing small farmers in BC over both government bureaucracy around the Agricultural Land Commission and some newly proposed regulations here in Metro Vancouver. Before we get to Dan, let's talk all about real estate. Well, no surprise that big corrections may be afoot for the Metro Vancouver real estate market, but I guess the question is, how low can we go, especially when it comes to detached homes? With us today is Dane Idle. He is the founder and lead analyst at Idle Insights. Dane, great to have you back on the show. Tyler, it's always uh, appreciated to be here with you, and uh, we're looking forward to our chat today. Okay, so in terms of this detached market, where are we right now compared with maybe just a few years ago? Uh, well, a few years ago, we're 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 actually kind of close to where we were in the uh, the takeoff point during September of 2015. The most recent data point that came out here in February for the average detached sale price was actually at one million four hundred and seventy-two thousand. Now that that's a significant drop from the from the peak of the market back in 2016 2017 when we were hovering around the 1.830 mark. So we've seen roughly around a you know a, around a four hundred thousand dollar price drop. More significantly, um, in that price drop, we actually dropped one hundred sixty thousand dollars in one month. Now, why that happened, or or, or the causality of that, uh, the, the it, it's broken out of the ten year uptrend, which is something we've talked about here on your show uh, a couple of times before. So, since we've peaked out, we've started to see a downtrend that has established itself in the technical terms of the real estate average sale price for the detached market. Now, this is a new way to analyze real estate markets. We've done it successfully right across Canada. Uh, Vancouver is one of our flagship markets that we've really become known for. And we, we, it was interesting because we kind of anticipated it to be a slower market this year um, with prices really being really tightly range bound. But looking at the charts, you know, that 1.66 mark was really tested about let's say seven or eight times here over the last couple of years, which was the middle pricing threshold. So the market seemed to stay between 1.6 and then, of course, at 1.83 with a with a lower topping out. Now that 1.6225 mark has really kind of said, you know what, I, I can't sustain this anymore. So I've given up hope. What used to be the base in the market will now become a ceiling. So I think we will see a, a, a reversion back with higher prices compared to the 1.472 mark over spring, even into summer. Um, so we'll, we'll, the market will psychologically try and get back into that 10-year uptrend that was established during the 08-09 recession, which is what we've subsequently fallen out of. We don't believe that it will be able to obtain a long-lasting term in this. We, we can see it maybe going back up to the 1.625 mark 
and testing to get back into that old territory that we believe will ultimately fail. The market will come back down to the 1.40 threshold, which, which is exactly where we took off during you know the, the third quarter of 2015. That will be a total correction of 24%, um, $430,000 from the peak of 2017 there. What's interesting now, what we're kind of seeing is the inventory available listings during February was actually only 5,632. Now, that sounds like a lot of properties, but the, the average normal market over the last 13 years sees 5,839 listed properties. So even with a bad month, the available inventory isn't at peak levels yet. It just really shows that the, 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 the demand factors aren't there, aren't prevalent at all. So as this market continues to decrease in price, we will see an increase in inventory of people that are actually starting to get panicked and start to sell. This eventually will all play itself out by 2021, which will be roughly a five-year mortgage term from the peak of 2016 markets. Now, just one other caveat. We still believe the 1.400 mark will hold um, for the basing the bottom of this market. However, um, if that watermark doesn't hold, the next pricing threshold is all the way down to 1.225, which would be a total correction of close to 600,031%, which is historically high for Vancouver on an average basis, but not so when you consider stress tests that have taken into a plus, in, into place, basically eroding 20% of your buying power. So in that essence, there's really only 11% if the 31% comes to fruition of actually real brand new buying power for the buyers, and that would definitely uh, pick the market up. The sellers would be in a place, um, for sure, that would be some panic setting in at a 31% equity decrease in your property. But uh, that's that's our outside look. We still do believe that the 24% correction should hold. However, uh, this is a possible reality. We're still talking 2021, which is a couple of years away. Well, I want to jump back to one thing that you had uh, pointed out here, that there's a bit of a, a short-term story going on as well as a long-term story. And I guess in the short term, your advice would not necessarily be to get into the market, say, you know, uh, spring, summer at this point. No, um, I agree uh, totally, especially if we're looking for investment opportunities. Um, if you're that, once again, average home buyer that really likes a property, has been waiting to kind of step into the market, I mean, and you have a 10-year outlook, definitely prices are cheaper. There is more properties available. The competition isn't rampant like it has been you know, two years ago. So on a 10-year outlook, of course, if it's your dream property, corner lot, uh, you love it, you, you want to live there, you want to raise kids, it's the neighborhood you like. Of course, please feel free to go ahead and pull the trigger um, because the market will be much, much better 10 years out. However, if you're looking for a second or a third or a really income property, uh, we, we think that the grass is greener you know, uh, over the next hill and it'll take some time to get there. We do have our clients that have called in and said, you know, the market has hit or the, the market's hit 1.4, which is the bottom, according to you know what we've said in the past. And, and it's fantastic that the market is reacting to our predictions. However, the 1.4 mark that we will see as an entry point really won't just hit one time. This thing will continue to bounce around, really not too much movement um, around that time that we would say, yeah, this is bottoming out. Now we're going to see a reversal of fortune. Right now, we're still strongly in this downtrend um, and, and as evidenced from the 160000 price drop over the last month. 
So why is it based on maybe the data that you guys have right now that you don't believe it's going to go below 1.4, at least at this point? Sure. That's a great question. Um, so basically, there was the third quarter, second and third and quarter of 2015, where the market psychologically tested 1.4 million uh, for I mean, six, seven months. We, we hovered right around there, 1.4 to 1.450. And at that time, the market says, yes, we are worth much more than this. The market was hot. Things were, everything was good. There was no end to the investment opportunity here in Vancouver for foreign buyers. There was no really negative impacted story whatsoever. So the market shot from 1.4 all the way up to 1.825. I mean, in the matter of six months. So we spent eight months testing 1.4 and six months, we increased roughly 400,000, which will be the huge psychological test. And if we break that 1.4 and we see a, a, a consequential breaks where it actually does start to go below there, the market will go for another dip for basically another $200,000. Well, if we, you know, maybe uh, change lanes to a certain degree, I am curious about your basic uh, or your initial take on the federal budget that was released this week. I think if you look at a lot of the headlines, they're saying affordability options. Uh, is that in fact accurate to deduce based on what the government announced? It. it- it's it's a good headline, um, <laughs> which sure. I, I believe is probably the intention behind it. Now, when they're doing a federal budget, they're talking to the nation, right? So the nation on whole isn't Vancouver and Toronto. That's the media's nation, uh, if you will. So it, it, it's kind of an interesting thing where the standards have changed for the first time buyers. They're trying to make it easier for the first time buyer to get in. However, and, and that's once again is another good headline. However, when you look at the stringent requirements that you have to jump through the hoops to get this help, it, it, it's really not achievable for for a person looking to purchase a, a, a townhouse, a house, or even really a condo in Van, Vancouver proper, Greater Vancouver area. It has to be below a five hundred thousand price period as a purchase price. I believe the household income that that will be moving in there can't be above one hundred and twenty five thousand. So. It, I mean, the average property downtown condo is is still well above 600, right? So it kind of takes a lot of the market out. It's a good headline to say that we're, we're looking at housing affordability and we'll take measures if needed. Now, in uh, there was a lot of public outcry that came that said prices are, are, are running away too much too fast. And we don't see any kind of public outcry saying the other sentiment right now. So that's kind of our understanding why the government had a nice piece to say, but really didn't do anything that would uh, upset the uh, the cart that got them to where they are. So at what point do you think that you will hear maybe cries from people about maybe prices declining too much? Right. So, I mean, once we do see a 24% drop in equity, which would be the 1.4 price, uh, w- that will start to become prevalent because right now we're still into the previously established prices, but before February, we were much higher than 2015. So, I mean, we're, we still had an equity position on a historic basis where it's, it's okay. I mean, prices shouldn't go higher 100,000 year after year after year. That's not a healthy market. And that's kind of what we were geared towards. So now that we've backed off, everyone says, well, it's an even market, um, which is kind of true. Uh, but it's only an even market from a heated market, which will actually lead to a cool market. So when we trend it out, it, it, it's going to be a lot worse in the forecast for prices. Once again, uh, a home for the average husband and wife with their kids is, is a home. It's somewhere to live. 
that's not really the client we're necessarily talking to. For those people, we do have reports available that'll say, where's Coquitlam in their pricing scale? How low is it? Because here we talk about Greater Vancouver. Every city is individual. So if you're looking at New Westminster, Delta, Coquitlam, we can help you out with those reports to kind of show you where it is in in that cycle for that particular city. Here in Greater Vancouver, we have I mean we have the heavyweights and we have the lesser thans. So the heavyweights are are starting to definitely see a significant hit. And the lesser thans are, are the, the smaller communities are, are are feeling them as well, but it's to a different degree and impact. We will see on this overall chart a bounce back this year. So don't be misled by quarter over quarter growth or loss, because it, it's interesting by a lot of economists, they'll choose their numbers willy nilly. Sometimes they'll quote the HPI, sometimes they'll quote the median price, sometimes they'll quote inventory numbers, sometimes they quote sales. We, we quote the same numbers Consistently, we use inventory numbers, sales numbers, and average sale price. The average sale price, in our opinion, doesn't lie. That is what the average price of the market is, if you're talking average homes. So um, whereas median, you're really just picking the middle property of the number of sales that happened, which is, uh, you know, it's an argument for economists, I guess, to hash sure. out. But uh, yeah, where, where we see this market for the next year, it won't be consistently $100,000 price drops. We actually believe it'll go back up to maybe around 1.55 and and possibly even test the 1.625 mark. That test will fail, which will confirm the 10-year uptrend break and will definitely send this market psychologically searching for a bottom. We believe as it sits right now, 1.4 will be the bottom. On the outside chance, if that doesn't hold, it'll be going down to 1.225 for the next psychological test. Well, we'll keep our eyes on the data. And for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the show, Dane. No problem, Tyler. It's always good to be here with you. That's Dane Idle. He's founder and lead analyst at Idle Insights. And stay with us. We'll be back in just a second. Last week, the federal government laid out some of its plans for the future of taxing cannabis within Canada. And with us to dive into that story, as well as more about what's going on within the local industry, it's Dan Sutton. He's the CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's start with the budget here. Uh, When cannabis edibles become legal later this year, they're going to be taxed based on THC quantity, not the total price of the product. What do you make of this decision here? So I've spoken to a lot of uh, academics on this topic. Uh, I was lucky to do some work in the UK as well as uh, attend a conference in in New York where the advocacy around taxing based on THC content was really high. I think really where they're trying to drive with this is taxing based on likelihood to inebriate. Now, there's some question as to whether or not THC is the only inebriating factor uh, in a full spectrum cannabis oil that you might see in an edible, uh, but Ultimately, I am probably going to take a contrarian view to the rest of my peers and say that I I think this is a really smart way to go about things. Um, Essentially, if you are disincentivizing all else the same, the consumption of high THC uh, products and and incentivizing low THC products, it's a good message to especially first-time consumers that are saying, huh, not only do I not want to get too high, but I also want, don't want to pay too much. And so as a result, I'm going to go and elect for the, uh, the, the lower THC offering. What do you think it means, though, for business? You're taking kind of the consumer side of this. Do you think it's going to have a negative impact on businesses at all? Well, all taxation of legal cannabis is a disincentive relative to black market cannabis. So if uh, that remains a priority, um, you know, we obviously want to start taxing this 
industry as though it is a nascent industry. I think there's often a misconception, especially with government, that these firms are massive, you know, they're uh, very robust and they can sustain competitive pressures, especially from the black market. But keep in mind, very few firms in cannabis are profitable today. Uh, Tantalus Labs may be one of them, but that's that's not true of most of our peers. And we still need to treat this like a nascent industry. And so uh, I think in that context, you always want to start the taxes low and then try to find an equi- equilibrium over time. Um, but ultimately, any cannabis producer that's saying that they can't compete based on these tax levels, I think is being disingenuous. Now, am I, you know, reaching a little too much if I want to compare this to, say, the liquor industry in BC? What if there's a can of a double IPA that was taxed at a different rate than a can of, say, lager? Is that kind of a fair comparison that I'm making, or is there a fundamental difference between that and, say, the cannabis industry or, or cannabis products, I should say? I think it's a reasonable comparison, and especially when you look at specialty products that target quality-sensitive consumers, in your analogy, the IPA, and in mine, perhaps, you know, a fine hash or a, a high-end rosin concentrate, you're dealing with a consumer base uh, that generally is less price-sensitive. These are people who want special experiences. They may not be consuming these products all the time. If you only drank double IPAs, you might get sick of them because they're a little bit intense in the flavor profile. And so as a result, you see uh, a, a greater elasticity around the demand uh, relative to price. So there are some issues surrounding medical marijuana patients. Uh, This kind of ties into this because what is your take on the taxation levels with regards to this for medical patients specifically if we are, you know, taxing based on THC levels? Yeah, they've got this wrong. Um, And we shouldn't be taxing cannabis as a medicine. We don't tax any other medicines in Canada. <clears throat> the writing's on the wall, and I think you've got a very loud and, and, and staunch advocacy base for reducing or eliminating the tax on medical cannabis. I think the government position is that, oh yeah, the, that will create misusers of the medical system, but we still use physicians as the gatekeepers to the system. Those physicians are amply qualified to identify whether or not someone is at risk of, of misuse of cannabis. And so I think that that's a bit of a cop-out uh, and ultimately taxing medical cannabis users is wrong and we shouldn't be doing it. Do you think ultimately the government's going to have to circle back around on this? Do you interpret it more of just kind of a cash grab on Ottawa's part at this point if they are taxing medical marijuana differently than they would any other medicine? I think it's less about the money and more about the disincentives. Ottawa knows that there's plenty of money to be made in recreational cannabis and I think the provinces are starting to catch on to that notion. Um, but the medical cannabis using community uh, in the legal market today is has probably shrunk substantially since recreational legalization. At least the patients signed up might be the same, but the frequency of purchase is probably lower. Uh, we've certainly seen that in our own e-commerce platform, far slower growth in our medical system uh, than in our recreational platform. And so to say that, you know, maybe 100,000, 150,000 active users are driving revenues to Ottawa, I think that that's not the right read. Okay. And uh, one of the other things that I think we need to get into here, something that I think is close to you, though, is what the, I guess, hurdles for small farmers are facing right now here in this province. Specifically, let's take a look at some of the bureaucracy facing the Agricultural Land Commission. What are some of the issues that you've been coming across lately, Dan? Yeah. So I've I've had meetings uh, with the 
British Columbian Cannabis Secretariat on this topic. Uh, I think what we have right now is actually a really reasonable set of federal regulations around microcultivation, around outdoor cultivation, and around small farms ultimately diversifying the cannabis industry into more small businesses. This would be hugely po powerful in British Columbia. In British Columbia today, we have a black market economy in cannabis where small decentralized farmers supplying localized communities is driving a huge amount of ultimately unregulated, but still job creation uh, and economic spillover effect. And so British Columbia just hasn't quite figured out how to endorse those businesses yet. We've got a good set of federal regs, but the provincial regs seem to be running up against uh, a variety of different extra-provincial, extra-municipal and municipal bureaucracy uh, that is that is preventing them, preventing these small businesses from really diving into this economy. So uh, one of the most egregious, I think, is the Agricultural Land Commission's decision uh, to treat cannabis farms that don't meet a very thinly interpreted and small set of criteria as a non-farm use. Ultimately, even if you're cultivating cannabis indoors, but certainly if you're cultivating cannabis in a greenhouse and uh, in, a, in a field crop, you really deserve the rights and privileges afforded to, can to all farmers uh, in the Right to Farm Act or the Farming Protection Practices Act. And the Agricultural Land Commission, as of August of last year, has requested that firms voluntarily forego these farm rights and privileges to declare a non-farm use, ultimately giving their municipality a veto through a rezoning process that would be required to cultivate cannabis, a, a plant, uh, on the agricultural land reserve. So this has resulted in uh, a sort of Originally, it was probably about a six-month delay in the approvals, <clears throat> both from the municipality that were necessary as well as from the Agricultural Land Reserve. I talked to an applicant the other day who said that the Agricultural Land Reserve has now changed that timeline from 60 business days of processing to 180 business days. Yeah. That's almost a year. Yeah. They have to wait for a commission of people to say, you know what, this looks like a farm and we're happy to let you go forward. And I think that... Cannabis is farming. If, the, if cannabis producers fall within a farming designation, they should be treated as farmers. They should have open season on the agricultural land reserve. And that ultimately, this is a chance to revitalize a ton of defunct agricultural land. Right now, the, the broader agricultural industry in British Columbia is under significant pressure from globalization. Nitrogen chip tomatoes coming from Mexico are fresher than the fresh delivery that we see from localized firms. And so, so many of these firms, you know, Village Farms, Howlings, Bevo Agro, have turned to cannabis as a diversification strategy. These are large industrial farmers. That will be true with small local hobby farms as well. They can't sell organic produce, you know, in the same fresh to market ways. There's a ton of strain on any farmer's business. It's very difficult to be a farmer in British Columbia today. And a diversification of even a small subset of that land into producing cannabis can be a lifeline for these small farmers. Now, I wouldn't expect you to speak on behalf of, say, some of the municipalities or the ALC, for example. But do you think that with regards to some of the pushback from the municipalities, does it just simply come down to a bit of nimbyism to a certain degree? Is there still a lot of people out there that might just be uncomfortable with the idea of this particular crop being grown and they're very close to where they live? I think there absolutely is nimbyism in those conversations. I also think the municipalities are a mixed bag. 
When yeah. I talk to people in the Southern Kootenays, when I talk to people in Southern Vancouver Island, they suggest that their municipalities and regional districts are incredibly encouraging of their businesses. Yet we've got you know regions in the Fraser Valley and regions other in other places in BC. We just saw a big headline out of Lumbee, BC, where there was a huge amount of concern from local residents, where municipalities are still confused. They haven't had any top-down guidance from the province. They haven't had any top-down guidance from the feds. They don't really understand what this business is, and they certainly don't understand what the 10-year outlook of economic spillover effects, job creation, local businesses, local supply chains thriving will mean for their localized economies. So do you think then it's maybe falling on the province to take more of a leadership role in in order to, I mean, help educate a lot of the municipalities, the governments themselves to make them understand what's going on here. And then from there, the municipalities can help out their residents, or is that just too many layers in your opinion? I'd love to see that from the province. If the province put out messaging to the municipalities that says, this is something that we want to encourage. Cannabis is likely to be one of the three largest industries in British Columbia over the course of the next five years, and your municipality has a chance to substantially benefit. There will be winners from the first moving municipalities, and there will be losers from municipalities that are hesitant. Uh, And I know that the Cannabis Secretariat in British Columbia is deeply committed to creating a thriving industry in this province, especially one that includes diversification into small businesses, into mom and pop operations, and, and into localized economic impact. But I think... Now that they've said that, now that they've come out and, and, and said that they do want uh, to see this industry thrive, we need to hold them to account. Uh, and the province of British Columbia could be doing 100 times more to encourage this business than they are today. Okay. Well, Dan, we always have much more to talk about and can't wait to get you back on in another few weeks. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. Thanks so much for your time. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. And that's it for the show today. We're going to be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. Leave five stars. It's going to help more people find the show. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.